0: open up to Matthew chapter 5 Matthew chapter 5 And and as you turn there I want to start with the question that I put in the email this week Do you ever feel like you are just not enough? You just don't measure up. Maybe not good enough. Maybe you feel like you're not smart enough. Not holy enough, not loving enough, just not enough. I'm guessing we can all identify with that in some way, shape, or form in different circumstances, different times. Just that feeling like I cannot be enough for what this situation needs, for what my life needs, for what God is asking for me, for what this person wants for me. I am just not enough. And I think Our world deals with this in two different ways. One is to kind of accept it and ignore it. I'm not enough. Doesn't matter. I'm just going to be me. I'll do me. You do you. And we'll just be who we are. And and we'll just do that and it doesn't matter. We'll just accept it. Embrace it. Celebrate it. Don't let anybody make you feel bad. It's one way of dealing with it. I think the Christian world has a similar response. We can accept and ignore that we're not good enough and we just say, oh, it doesn't matter. God just loves you. He just accepts you exactly the way you are. It doesn't matter how you act. It doesn't matter how you live. And there's a thread of truth in that, but it's a partial dangerous truth. God does accept us, but it also does matter how we live. I think that's one way of dealing with feeling like we're not enough. We'll just accept it, just ignore it, just move on. There's another way. It's the way of judgment and shame. In the non-Christian world, I think it's choose a side. Choose your side. Choose your social movement, choose your political party and it, you have the right to choose, but if you choose differently than me, you're wrong. With total freedom, just with a lot of judgment and shame. Fix society, align with a contemporary trend. There's all this guilt and shame that comes on top of us. Unfortunately, we also see this in the Christian world. Sometimes it's Christians jumping on board the latest trends of society and keeping judgment on other Christians or somebody feeling like, oh, that person does so much and I just don't do enough. And we feel the judgment and the shame. Sometimes it takes on a more religious veneer. And we point out every sin in every other person. And sometimes in the quietness of moments alone, we're pointing those fingers right back at ourselves. And we're the ones giving our own judgment and shame, not only to ourselves, but to others. And we become plagued by guilt We become judgmental of others and that often leads to just being self-righteous. So what should we do? What do we do with that feeling that I believe is somewhat universal, that I am not enough? The Old Testament law lays out all sorts of things that are sinful. Detail after detail. God coming to the people of Israel saying, this is wrong. Don't do this. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. And here's what you need to do to make it right. It talks about judgment. It talks about sacrifice to pay for our sins. And it talks about shame and guilt. So so maybe that way of dealing with it is right. Maybe we should feel judgment and shame. But then we come to the New Testament and Jesus dies in our place and salvation is a free gift and Jesus accepts us just as we are and he gives us his grace and his righteousness. So maybe we should just ignore this feeling that we're not enough. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, which is the passage we're looking at today, we're going to look at this through the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a tough look. It's a tough subject, but we're going to try to dig into it to see what does Jesus say about this. Let me put the passage before us here: Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. Where's the grace, Jesus? Jesus? Where's the free gift of salvation? Where's the truth that we can't earn our salvation, that we don't have to try to measure it up, because that's what it sounds like he's saying. He's, it sounds to me like in this passage, Jesus is pointing a finger at each one of us and saying, you, you are not enough. And that's exactly what he's doing. And it's hard, but we need to look at why he's doing that. A little bit of context. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's chapter, or Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And we talked about the introduction at the end of chapter 4 to the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 4, verse 17, it talks about how Jesus began his public ministry. He begins to go preaching and teaching, and this is what he says. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So Matthew introduces that, and then we go into the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' preaching about repentance because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So this is the context of what Jesus is saying. We talked about how repentance means to turn from something. It's it's a complete, I'm going in this direction, but I'm going to turn and go in a different direction. But turn from What? Is it just what you think is wrong, or what I think is wrong, or what somebody else thinks is wrong? Okay, we'll turn from that now. Oh, now this is wrong. I guess we turn from that. And we become like a pinball just bouncing around the standards of society. That's not what Jesus is saying. See, he's speaking to a Jewish audience. So when he talks about turning from something, they knew exactly what he was talking about because the law laid it out in explicit detail. The law told them what was wrong. And what was right. And they had these religious leaders, these religious teachers. A big group of them were known as the Pharisees. You've probably heard of them. Kind of the bad guys of Jesus' life. And they had a good start. In the time in between the Old and the New Testament, the Pharisees kind of were started as this group of religious leaders that had a burning passion for helping God's people to live God's law. And that's a good thing. That was what they were supposed to do. That was the whole point of the law in the first place. So their start was good. But in order to help people, what they did is said, okay, God's law says don't do this. Don't work on the Sabbath. We're going to help people to not work on the Sabbath. Let's bring this into their day-to-day lives and make it really applicable. If you walk farther than from here to here, you've just broken that law. If you open a door, turn a doorknob, flick a light switch, you've just broken that law. Now, the Pharisees of Jesus' day didn't say that. But some modern Jewish people live that way. Certain things I can and can't do. Now, is it in God's law you may not walk this far? No. It just says don't work on the Sabbath. The Pharisees added to the law with the best of intentions But then those things they added to the law became more important than the law itself. And they became statements of judgment and shame that the Pharisees used to make others feel that they're just not enough. But it raises the question, did Jesus do away with the law? Is it just not applicable to us anymore? Is it not important to us after the cross and after the resurrection? We're the New Testament church. Does the law still apply to Christians today? And if so, how? So here's what we're going to do today. I want to walk quickly through the text and make, I think it's four observations. Then I want to take a brief, and I emphasize brief, a brief summary of the Old Testament law. It's a much larger topic that we can possibly go into today, but I want to hit the high points so we understand. And then I want to look at all of this through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? Can we do that? All right, so let's start with some observations. Some things that really jump out to me from this passage. The first observation is that Jesus believes in Scripture. Mind blown, I know, right? But not just any Scripture. He believes in the Old Testament. He believes every word of the Old Testament, every letter of the Old Testament as having divine authority from God himself. Look at verse 18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Look at how he thinks about scripture there. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, what does he mean by the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen? You may have heard the phrase every jot and tittle. And that's where This is where it comes from. Okay, So let's look briefly. I'm no Hebrew scholar, but I just want to help you. I found this on the internet. I didn't make this. This is really helpful. So the yod, sometimes transliterated to jot, Okay. Now, it's kind of hard here, but that little mark there is like an apostrophe. You've seen an apostrophe in English? I mean, it's just this tiny little thing at the top of a line and could easily be overlooked. That's the smallest written letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's a jot, just a tiny little ink blot on the page. The tittle is even more interesting. So on the left, there is one letter, and on the right is a different letter. Do you see the difference? It's like a tiny little triangle. If you know anything about fonts, you've heard of serif and sans serif. So a serif is like a tittle. It's, it's like a little flourish on a letter. But in English, when we talk about fonts, it's, it's not important. It just makes it look pretty. When you're talking about that in Hebrew, it completely changes the letter, which could change the meaning of the text. Jesus is saying every little bit matters. We have this in English. This has got to be the most boring slide I've ever made by the... <laughs> I feel like I should have you cover one eye and read the top line. <laughs> what's the first letter? Q. What's the second letter? Oh, what's the difference? A tittle. There you go. It's just that little tiny stick, right? Look at the next letter, N, an H. I just got to tell you, I, work, I remember working with, I think, each of my kids and their handwriting on this because it was so easy for an N to look like an H and an H to look like an N. It's just a tiny little extension. It looks like a decoration, but it completely changes the letter. That's what Jesus is talking about. Every little bit matters. Jesus believes in Scripture. He does not ignore or set aside or do away with the Old Testament. There are Christians today that will say the Old Testament doesn't apply to us anymore. We just need Jesus. We just need the red words. We just need everything after Christ. That is not what Jesus himself believes. I was a youth pastor at a church. There was a guy that came in and taught an adult Sunday school class, and several of my youth went to that class. And he taught that everything before the crucifixion did not apply to us in any way, shape, or form. Don't look at it. Don't read it. It doesn't matter. And I went to the elders of the church, and I said, that man is a heretic, and he should be cast out. He went on to be a pastor of a church in Texas, wrote several books, became somewhat famous. scary. It's terrifying. It's an extreme form of looking at Scripture. Jesus says it does matter. All of it matters. We cannot throw any of it out. When Paul wrote, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, he meant all Scripture, old and new. In fact, he was probably primarily at that point talking about the old. It all matters. Second observation. Jesus demands righteousness. This modern Christianity says it doesn't matter how you live, doesn't matter what you think, doesn't matter what you do. Jesus disagrees with that. Look at what he says. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Ouch. I mean, to the Jewish people, if you would have said, who are the most righteous people among you? They would have pointed to the Pharisees. They were known for being righteous. They they wanted to be known for being righteous. They wanted everybody to know that they were righteous and to not miss that fact and to hopefully applaud them in their righteousness. But they were known for their extreme standard of righteousness. Righteousness is basically living rightly with God in a right relationship, living in a way that displays God's character. And Jesus says, you have to be righteous. But Jesus also saw through the righteousness of the Pharisees. He's saying your righteousness needs to surpass theirs. Their standard isn't even high enough. But he also says their conduct, their understanding of it was wrong. Matthew 23, 27 to 28, he has this to say to the Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Solid burn, Jesus. I mean, like that, from our culture, we look at that and say that's quite an insult, but if we look at it from their culture, it's way more. Because to touch an unclean thing was to be unclean, to be unrighteous. And he's saying, you are the unclean thing. It was the absolute opposite of everything they thought they were. The Pharisees had an outward righteousness that was never matched by their inward attitude and motivations. They lived righteously so that others would applaud them and admire them. But what Jesus is saying is that righteousness is more than just actions. So by saying this to us, he's saying righteousness needs to be more than the Pharisees. Don't have a hypocritical righteousness. It needs to be a total righteousness. What you do say, think, and why you do say and think it. Coming out of our heart. But he's also saying very clearly, we cannot ignore righteousness. There is a standard that is even greater than the highest standard that they had of their day, and Jesus is saying, You must be even more righteous than that. Feeling not good enough? Feeling like you can't measure up? Because I am. So Jesus demands righteousness. He doesn't say that we can just accept ourselves just the way we are. He does not say that God just overlooks sin and that it just doesn't matter. Jesus demands righteousness. Third observation. Jesus fulfills the law. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And the law and the prophets there is just a, a way of referencing the entirety of the Old Testament. Sometimes they called all of the Old Testament the law, the law and the prophets, the law of the prophets and the writings. Basically, he's all referring to the same thing, the Old Testament, sometimes specifically just the law. Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish it. He's not saying it's completely worthless, don't look at it, it doesn't mean anything. In fact, he says all of it is important. I have come to fulfill it. And then in verse 18, he says the law has, is something that needs to be accomplished. It can't pass away until everything is accomplished. And the word there, the word in 517 means fulfilled. It means filled up, nothing lacking, completely finished, like a cup that's been filled to the brim with water. It's fulfilled. And this word here, accomplished, means something that is completely created, something that is done or has come to pass. It's like an artwork that is finished by the artist. It's accomplished, it's done, it's complete. And Jesus says that the law needs to be accomplished, fulfilled, complete. So we see here that Jesus fulfills the law. He doesn't ignore it and he doesn't set it aside. Now, by now you should start to have some questions. Right? If if we're approaching the word of God with hopefully some thoughts in our head and, and we're thinking about it, we're wrestling with it, which I hope you are, you should start to have a question, wait a minute, Does this mean we have to keep the Old Testament law? Do we have to do everything it says? Should we be sacrificing animals right here? Should we live by kosher regulations? One more observation before we get to that. The fourth observation that I see from what Jesus says is that this is a salvation issue. It's not just good and bad. Better or worse, it is a salvation issue. Look at what he says in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, if we don't get this right, we cannot be saved. This is heavy stuff. Entering the kingdom of heaven is Christ's way of talking about being saved. To be in his eternal kingdom. And Jesus is saying, if we don't get this right, if we don't understand what he's talking about here, if we are not righteous enough, we can never be saved. Jesus believes scripture. Jesus demands righteousness. Jesus fulfills the law. And this is a salvation issue. To me, these few verses right here take away so much thinking of contemporary Christianity that says it just doesn't matter, be whoever you want to be. Jesus did not believe that. It absolutely matters. and It matters who we are and how we live. But what we need to be careful of is that it doesn't go to the other extreme of becoming judgmental and hypocritical and just living under this overbearing burden of shame and guilt. And it raises the question, can we ever be good enough for God? Can we meet this righteous standard that Jesus sets forth or are we without hope? Now let's look briefly, the Old Testament law. I struggled with how much of this to put in. As you can imagine, this is a huge topic. We don't have time to go really deep into this, but I want to hit some key points. The first is that the Old Testament law reveals who God is. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve reject God. They're cast out from God's presence and all of humanity then lives in this cast out state away from God who created them and wants a relationship with them. They're in a rebellious condition and an ignorant condition. They cannot possibly know who God is on their own because they have turned their back on Him. And God in His mercy reaches into human history and He begins this relationship. We see it with Abraham and he calls him and his offspring. And he takes them through this ongoing relationship. It ends up leading them into Egypt where they are enslaved. And then he rescues them divinely and powerfully and miraculously. And then he brings them into the wilderness and he has a chat with them. And he gives them his law. And the law starts with these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, how do we know? How do we know we're worshiping the one true God? They had a whole menu of gods and goddesses to choose from. How could they be sure that they were worshiping the one true God and that they were correctly worshiping him? That's what the law answered. The law said, this is who I am. Here's my righteous character. I want you to get to know me. God's law shows God's holiness, God's righteousness, and God's perfect character. There is no way we would know that on our own. The law is a gift of grace to God's people. The law also reveals our sin. And the best way to think about this is the tabernacle. I love talking about the tabernacle. I've got to be careful we don't go too long here. But God told them to set up one tent in the middle of their camp as they wandered through the, the wilderness. And that tent was divided into two sections. The holy of holies, the innermost room, an outer room, the holy place. And then it was surrounded on the outside by a courtyard. And the Israelites would come and go in the courtyard to offer sacrifices, to give their offerings, to, to come and to worship. The priests only could go into the holy place and every day they had certain duties in there and each thing represented part of the character of God. Light, prayer, The the communion with God. We're going to be celebrating communion in a moment. They had a table with bread on it all the time. That God was with them, communing with them constantly. And then there was this innermost room separated by this super thick curtain. And nobody could go into there except once a year on the Day of Atonement, only the high priest, only by following all of these regulations. And he brought the sacrifice of atonement for all the people of Israel. Every year. Over and over Again, I think it's amazing if we walked into the tabernacle, think about what you would see and hear and smell. We think of worship. We have a wonderful, beautiful sanctuary, right? Some churches, they burn incense and there's, there's a wonderful smell. We have wonderful music in the background and worship is a pleasant, wonderful thing. It was not so in the tabernacle. Animals were being slaughtered. Blood was splashed on the ground, thrown onto the altar. The carcasses were burned on the altar. Part of it had to be taken outside and thrown away. And this went on over and over and over, day after day after day. It was gross and it was disgusting. Why? Because a holy God was living with wicked sinners and sin is disgusting. And it demands a price be paid. The price of life. I've used the picture before of a, an ice cube in the sun. And if the sun wants to have a relationship with the ice cube, it can't just reach out to the ice cube and bring the ice cube in close to the sun for a big warm hug because the ice cube would go poof and be no more. God cannot just bring us into His presence as sinners. Sin has to be dealt with. But God wanted the Old Testament people to know Him. So He brought them close and He put a system in place to protect them. And that's what the Old Testament sacrificial system is. It's a buffer between His holiness and their sinfulness so that they could come close enough and get to know Him. But it never completely solved the problem. God did all this because He knows that we are sinners. He knows that we need to be saved. And that's the next thing that the law does. It points to our need to be saved. God gave them this sacrificial system to deal with sin. He didn't just come to them and say, you're a bunch of sinners, you need to fix this. He said, you're a bunch of sinners and here's how I'm going to fix it. And I love that even in the Old Testament, salvation comes from God. God did all this because he knows that we are sinners. He knows that we need to be saved. And he wants us to understand this. Remember why Jesus came preaching? He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You see, the law points to each one of us and says, you are not good enough. But a holy, righteous God wants to have a relationship with you. And it leaves this question hanging. It's like a signpost pointing to something that they just weren't quite sure what it would be. God is going to change this. God is going to save us. The law is important in the New Testament. The New Testament just doesn't just dismiss it and do away with it and say it doesn't matter. Our passage today shows that Jesus considered the law very important. Later on in Matthew 22, uh, 22, 37 to 40, Jesus answers a question. What's the most important commandment? He says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And we love to take that and say, well, if you're just loving, then you are fulfilling the law. That is a very shallow way of looking at what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that the entirety of the law has to do with your relationship with God and your relationship with others. It's all about that. So if you keep the commands, but you don't love God and you don't love others, you're not actually keeping the commands. If we go to Hebrews chapter 8, the writer of Hebrews says, by calling this covenant new he, speaking of Jesus, made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. And then if we skip forward to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeat it endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. So the law points ahead to something greater. We skip to Hebrews 10, verse 10, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all." Verse 14, "For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy." in verse 18, "And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary." And, and some Christians read that and say, "See? Law doesn't apply, it doesn't matter. What the author of Hebrews is saying is the law set this all up. We would not be able to understand what Jesus did if it wasn't for the law. It all pointed to him. That's why Jesus said, I haven't come to abolish it. I have come to fulfill it. To fill up in the law what you were never good enough to do. Let's conclude by looking at this through the lens of the gospel. The gospel begins with an understanding, you are not good enough. The gospel of Jesus Christ always begins an understanding and a confession that we are sinners and unable to save ourselves. You can't jump over that. If you jump over that, you've jumped over the entirety of the Old Testament, so much of what Jesus says, so much of what Paul says. The gospel begins with an admission, I am not good enough. And then the gospel shows how God saves us through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the good news there. So we can't get stuck in the I'm not good enough, but we can't jump over our sin and just say, oh, Jesus just accepts me exactly the way I am. It's I'm not good enough and I need Jesus to change me. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become what? Better people? Better version of yourself? We might become the righteousness of God. See, when Jesus says your righteousness must surpass even the Pharisees and he says to us, you are not good enough, What he's saying behind the entirety of this sermon is, I am going to do something that will not fill you with your own righteousness, but will give you my righteousness, the very righteousness of God. The whole passage of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 leading up to this is about being reconciled to God. How can we live in that right relationship? It is because Christ is our righteousness, God looks at us in our sins and He says, You're not good enough. You deserve to die. But then He looks at us through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ and He says, But death has occurred. The price has been paid. And you are righteous because my son, Jesus, is absolutely righteous. The gospel says, You are not enough. You will never be enough on your own. The gospel says, Jesus is enough. Only, always, forever, Jesus is enough. And we cannot twist that to just discard sin and say it doesn't matter. And We cannot twist that to live in guilt and shame all the time. We must say it's all about Jesus. He is enough. This is how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law. It all points to Him. The law is a signpost pointing to Jesus Christ. And it's still meaningful and valuable to us today to see how it points us to Jesus. And yes, there are things in the Old Testament law that, that the New Testament clarifies and say it says it doesn't apply to us, but we can still learn from it because it teaches us about our sin and it teaches us about God's righteous character. But then we need to understand that we have Christ's righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount is a call to repent. And it's Jesus laying out for them and for us, here's why you need to repent. Because you are not righteous enough on your own, and you never will be. But the rest of the story is the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. It's Jesus living his life righteous, dying in our place and raising from the dead to make us righteous. So let's end where we began. Do you ever feel like you're not enough? Accept it. Cry out to Jesus and say, I am not enough. But then say, but Jesus, you are enough. You did everything to fulfill the law, to fulfill God's standard of righteousness we must accept the truth in our lives that Jesus is enough. Will you pray with me before we lead into communion? Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, we get this wrong so often. In many ways, we want to take the easy extremes. It's simpler To just say nothing matters, live however you want. And it's also simpler to just live in guilt and in judgment on ourselves and those around us. It's simple because our sin loves to pull us in either of those directions. So it just feels natural. But God, you sent your Son to come and to show us the true way of righteousness, the true way to be made right with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, I thank you that your Son, Jesus, fulfilled the law. All of its righteous requirements, all of its penalties for sin, all of its requirements for a perfect sacrifice were fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And God, I pray as Christians we would live lives understanding your Son has fulfilled the law so that we can be set free and saved through Him. In His name we pray. Amen.